boils and ghouls. It's time to gather round us, horrifying hunter, petrified Preston, and devilish Dan. Crack open another cursed volume of tales from the crypt. This is Horrors from the Vault. <laughs> Welcome, kitties, to Horrors from the Vault. My name is Horrifying Hunter, and I'll be one of the three shadowy figures leading you down into the vault. Tonight, we're cracking open our first ever volume from the vault, The Man Who Was Death. Our story is about a man with nobler ambitions. He likes to kill human pets, and he does it in front of an audience. Now that's entertainment. So hang on to your hats, kitties. This one's a real shocker. That's right, folks. We are going to be taking a look at Season 1, Episode 1, aired on June 10th of 1989. Of course, I am talking about The Man Who Was Death. But before we can dive into this episode, let me go ahead and introduce the other two figures who will be joining me as we talk about one of these macabre tales. Like always, I'm joined by my good friend and co-host, Petrified Preston. Good to be here, man. We're digging into the first episode of Tales from the Crypt. We got a lot to talk about, a lot of amazing, um, you know, people behind the scenes with this, great comic book connections. So excited to really dig into our first episode. This is so exciting, guys. Oh, yeah. Is it safe to call it uh, electrifying? I feel electrified. Oh, I think that's fair. You like that? You like that? I'm here all week. Well done. Um, and then also, we are joined by Mr. History Man himself. Of course, I'm talking about Devilish Dan. What's going on, Dan? You just said that because I'm so old. Airing and production of these, are the first couple are so confusing that even the special feature on the disc yeah. of, of season one gets them in a weird order where I had to write you guys and be like, which one are we doing first? Because the Crypt Keeper thinks this other one's the first one. Yeah, and maybe I'll bring it up later, but I feel like a lot of that comes down to TNA. This one came on first because they're like, we need to grab little Dan and the rest of the audience here. This <laughs> oh. is going up first. There are numerous pairs of chess in this this episode. And we'll uh, we'll talk about the chests and how many there are. And yeah, they come out strong with a with a chest magic. If you will. come out swinging, if you will. Listen, he might go by Devilish Dan, but his middle name is definitely Horny. So you know, there, there's that <laughs> Devilish Horny Old Dan. Man Pervert Dan. <laughs> <laughs> I'm into that. Yeah, we'll, we'll come up with uh, we'll come up with the Horn Dog variations on all of our names. I feel like nice. mine's the easiest. But uh, yeah, <laughs> guys, first ever episode. Well, first official episode of Horrors from the Vault, where we're actually talking about the series. This is real exciting for obvious reasons, but. Also, you know, not to spoil the lead or anything, but we have a really solid episode to talk about tonight. And I'm just really excited to get into it because, wow, talk about coming out guns blazing, uh, especially that that first night where you got not only this one, but two of the other episodes of the series. There's a lot of good stuff here. Now, because this is the first episode that we are going to be covering Tales from the Crypt, a large chunk of this episode is going to be dedicated to what I'm calling the key players of Tales from the Crypt. So maybe they show up every single time in the opening Tales from the Crypt uh, episode or they're, you know, they're in the main list of people that collaborated on this. So I've gone ahead and asked our uh, show historian, Mr. Devilish Dan, to kind of talk about some of those key players before we dive into the comics and the episode, because we definitely want to make sure everybody gets a shout because look, this whole thing wouldn't happen without these major names that we're about to go over here. 
Yeah, listen, kids, we got to talk about these old men right now because they are very important to the series. The series wouldn't exist without them. Uh, and then we can get them out of the way and then we can talk about all the other people, the writers, directors, stars, et cetera, et cetera. But these are the brains behind it, the money men, uh, et cetera. And we're going to start. They're all called the Crypt Partners, quote unquote. That's what they like to call themselves. And really, the main three we're talking about are Richard Donner, Joe Silver, and Robert Zemeckis. You've probably heard some of these names before. Uh, Richard Donner, of course, is known for Superman, The Omen, The Goonies, and Scrooge. I know uh, Hunter, a couple of those are probably your favorites, Scrooge. Oh, yeah. Between Goonies and Scrooge, we are definitely a Donner household over here. You know, those get watched a couple times a year. And we'll see. There's uh, there's a lot of Goonies DNA scrabbled throughout the show, so definitely uh, we'll, we'll, we'll get there once we uh, talk about some other people. Uh, second name I mentioned was Joel Silver. Uh, he's probably one of the main things he's known for is the Matrix trilogy. He also started the Dark Castle production company with the Robert Zemeckis. Uh, they are responsible for all kinds of 2000 schlock greatness. Good stuff such as House of Wax, 13 Ghosts, House on Haunted Hill, and Orphan. Uh, if you haven't seen any of those, they're all a lot of fun, especially Orphan. Orphan, great twist. Might even be a better movie if you know the twist going in, because there's a lot of cringe uh, in the first half of that movie. Uh, Joe Silver also, I found out, had a quick cameo in Who Framed Roger Rabbit as the director over the opening short, Something's Cooking. Apparently, uh, they weren't a big fan of him over at Disney, so Zemeckis threw him in as just kind of a dig, and he ended up staying in the movie. I love it. That is such a fun fact that when we covered Who Framed Roger Rabbit on the other show that I'm part of, Disorder, that was a a big point of the conversation was how he was snuck in underneath his (laughs) nose. And look, who's the real baby Herman in this situation? He's obviously a very hateable guy, too, because the dude has so much fucking money that he collects Frank Lloyd Wright houses. He he basically collects them and, and restores them and makes sure they're they're nice. So you and I collect movies, comic books, toys, all kinds of shit. He collects legendary houses. <laughs> Joel, Joel, yeah. here, if you're listening to this, Joel, you have all that money and you didn't put that towards the weird uh, fucking blob monster at the end of the house on haunted hill. You had a solid movie until that thing came along. And I just, I want to know where you went wrong. I want, I want to know, was it cocaine? Was it other hard drugs? Let us know. Although I will say house of wax, 13 ghosts, some pretty decent effects. Uh, 13 ghosts might get a little funky with that weird clockwork spinny majig at the end, but, uh, (laughs) the rest of all the ghosts look phenomenal. Yeah, no, I, I definitely agree with that. Uh, third guy I mentioned, if we're ready to move on, Robert Zemeckis. He's my personal favorite of the three. Uh, he's a director, producer, visual effects innovator. Uh, he developed that weird fucked up performance capture animation style that you've seen and stuff like Christmas Carol, Polar Express, Beowulf. Where Mars needs moms. Mars needs moms. It falls right Our in favorite that- Tales from the Crypt episode. <laughs> <laughs> falls right in that weird uncanny valley of does this look good or it's just just creepy i don't i don't know um, but yeah he's responsible for that lately uh before that he's really known for uh movies such as romancing the stone contact death becomes her forrest gump but the real two important ones that we're going to talk about the back to the future trilogy Mwah! chef's kiss and who framed roger rabbit mm. yeah absolutely And we will have to talk about Death Becomes Her at some point because, you know, uh, there is information out there that that was originally going to be a Tales from the Crypt episode that ended up getting expanded. That's right. I I ran into that while researching. Yeah, that and Frighteners Uh, and, you know, a couple of others. We'll talk about it another time. But, yeah, it is worth mentioning. Frighteners, kids, if you haven't seen Frighteners, I know Hunter has has beliefs about it, but I think it's phenomenal. Uh, Wait, Wait for us to cover it and then they'll see a boom in it and then they'll remake it. We are, we are going to be responsible for the remake that you'll either That's what we need. think is better or you'll hate it. And they'll have a diatribe about it in Scream 8. Perfect. <laughs> uh, two more guys uh, that uh, helped produce the entire series. David Geiler. Uh, he basically seems to just be a producer, but he's responsible for a lot of the entries for the Alien series. And Walter Hill. But we're going to talk to him uh, more in a bit. Uh, as far as showrunners for the first season, William Teitler, he's the showrunner for season one and two. Uh, he mostly works with Robert Zemeckis, but he also recently produced the Jumanji movies. Then uh, showrunners from three on, we'll talk about them once we... Two more important guys uh, that we cannot 
not mention the Crypt Keeper himself, John Kassir, uh, has just done a shit ton of voice work, but is mostly known for his work as the Crypt Keeper. Uh, and Kevin Yeager is the creature designer for the Crypt Keeper. Uh, he also did many of the entries in the Nightmare on Elm Street series, starting with number two, Starship Troopers. He did the fat suit for Weird Al Yankovic's fat video. Uh, <laughs> he also designed the doll for Chucky, the Chucky doll, the original designer, which uh, if you look at the eyes for Chucky and the eyes for the Crypt Keeper, eh, it might look kind of similar. Might might be the same exact eyes. A, li- a little familiar there, huh? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Never going to see that the same way again. Yep. <laughs> uh, and the last guy I wanted to mention before we move on to episode proper is Mr. Danny Elfman, who does the uh, opening theme. Come on. We all know who Danny Elfman is. He does all the themes for Beetlejuice, Batman, all the Tim Burton stuff. He did the uh, opening theme for The Simpsons. He's also the lead creative force behind Oingo Boingo. Hunter, I know you got something to say about Danny Elfman, right? Oh, I just, yeah, I know it's a very basic choice, but he is absolutely one of my favorite composers, and a lot of that actually does come down (laughs) to Oingo Boingo, uh, one of my five favorite bands of all time, fun fact. Uh, So yeah, I I am all over the Boingo, and I am all over the Elfman. Also the singing voice for Jack Skellington in A Nightmare Before Christmas. I think that's where it all started for me. Yeah, the ultimate comfort mm-hmm. voice in a lot of ways. And uh, yeah, growing up when I did, Danny Elfman, you just could not escape him. And he scored pretty much absolutely everything that I love. And I think that he was one of the first composers, even you know before like I became aware of John Williams, You know, not to age myself you know, inappropriately or anything, but before I even became aware of the Jaws and Star Wars and Jurassic Park and Harry Potter guy, I was aware of Elfman just because, look, Spider-Man 2002, that was my everything. And uh, yeah, Mr. Elfman riding on top. Yeah, king of making whimsical scores. Oh, yeah. That's all I had for the main guys, unless uh, you guys think I missed anybody. But yeah, producers, puppeteers... Uh, Crypt Keeper himself, all kinds of good stuff. Well, now that our key players are all set, uh, let's go ahead and talk a little bit about the comic inspiration for this week's episode. Preston. Yeah, man, looking over at the comics, this has been such an incredibly good excuse to flip back through the pages of the Crypt of Terror, right? I mean, I got to tell you, and I, and I can speak for all of us here, we're all big physical media guys, right? And I only wish that it was super easy to get these original copies, you know, physically in my hands. But because I can't do that, and because I don't own the big omnibus, right, which I wish I certainly did, um, I had to go the uh, digital route. And I have to say, what an awesome kind of decision because these things have never looked better in my opinion. I mean, pulling these up on your iPad, I mean, just the bold colors, the artwork, the general aesthetic. I mean, it just shines through and it's basically everything I slash we love, like put into one thing, fellas. I think I can, I think I can say that, right? Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I wanted to point out too, that if anyone's out there looking to read the original comics of these, a lot of them are available on Hoopla, which is typically an app that is available through your library, completely free. Uh, You do get limited to the amount of downloads you can get, but uh, other than that, it's free and works really well. Yeah. Very good call. It's actually great that you brought that up because um, when I was a, a young teenager and I was going to the library constantly, a voracious reader and something I'm really trying to get back into, I really got into the Marvel horror comic books. I really got into Moon Knight and Werewolf by Night and specifically Tomb of Dracula. And that led me down the road of discovering EC Comics for the first time. And that is around the time period when... I think it was Dark Horse. Preston, you might have to correct me if I'm wrong, but they were doing the re-releases of these omnibus collected editions. And I was able to check them out from my library as they were coming out. And it was my first time having, you know, not rediscovered my full love of Tales from the Crypt, but definitely being aware of it from my childhood. And before I really started watching it again on the Chiller Network, which I brought up in the first episode, I was able to read a lot of these stories through those collected editions, and that was so cool. And uh, the fact that those are available, you're totally right. The restoration work is incredible, especially when you consider these were printed on 
you know, the cheapest paperback in the day. These were <laughs> 10 cent comic books, you know, that crushed and destroyed over the years and everything like that. The fact that they went back and did these incredible restorations. And I'm sure there's someone out there that's, you know, like us when it comes to physical media, where we talk about the mono track is, is really just the 5.1 that's mixed down into a mono. There, <laughs> there's got to be somebody out there that is like, you know, the color's all wrong. The color timing's different right, or whatever. Right. But <laughs> these look great to me. I'm happy to be an ignorant party on that front and yeah i'm just glad that there are ways to access them and good shout out on the the hoopla um, yes check out dan such a such a good resource man for for this and so many things as you kind of pointed out as well hunter you know to to reference this initial episode we have to start at issue number 17 and i mean it just blows my mind guys we are going back to the april may edition of of this comic back to 1950 like this story was published in 1950 and uh you know as i kind of pointed out in episode zero if you caught it there just incredibly ahead of its time and it's going to be so fun to dig into each and every one of these stories and uh, see how closely they really align with the episode itself because i have to say i mean minus a decently big detail here and maybe a smaller one here and there. I mean, this thing really lines up to the episode that we got on HBO that we're about to get into the nitty gritty details of. Um, Obviously the man who was death, right? I mean, we meet our main character. He's an executioner at the state prison. We'll obviously get much more into detail in that in just a few moments. But, um, you know, if I had to rate this on a scale of being close to the episode, I mean, I would at minimum probably go three and a half out of five, uh, borderline four. Um, because as I mentioned, you know, other than a big difference that we'll get to, I mean, these things line up really well and, uh, such an interesting kind of way to pick this as their premiere episode. Um, by the way, it wasn't the first story in this comic. There is actually one that comes before this. So this is kind of sandwiched in the middle. Um, it's a really super efficient, like eight pages roughly. I mean, it's under 10. So, I mean, you can, you can read this thing and, and digest it rather quickly. And it's just amazing to me. And I'm, and I'm so excited to see as we continue um, just the stories that they're able to tell in such a short length. Um, it's really impressive. And again, I just can't speak to how ahead of its time it was going back to 1950. Um, there was another fella I wanted to give a big shout out. Um, you know, Al, Al Feldstein, first of all, was was one of the big brains behind this, obviously. And as far as the art goes, um, he had a hand in that as well as Johnny Craig. So really fantastic work here. Whether you check it out on Hoopla, whether you download Download it, you know, digitally to, to whatever device you're using. Um, it's going to be great, especially with spooky season coming up. I mean, come on. You know, I'm so glad that you you really hit home how early this all was because, yeah, when, and when even you look at the horror movies that were coming out around that time, you're usually talking mid to late 50s. I mean, 1950, that's four years before Creature from the Black Lagoon. Uh, <laughs> a lot of the, the Hammer horror movies, you know, 1958, 1959, even the Castle films that are really well known, like uh, House on Haunted Hill and The Tingler and, and sure. all of that are definitely not on the same level as, as something like this as far as thematic material. But even those were several years later. So especially as they continue to get more and more diabolical and, and even graphic and, and gruesome in a lot of ways, uh, comic books was kind of your way to appease your your inner macabre self and i think that's what's so interesting because it is uh, like pornography like in a lot of ways where it's you know we are attracted uh to 80 slashers for boobs and butts and slashings <laughs> and and everything like that and for the 1950s like you're telling me i get to see a rotted corpse missing an eyeball and kind of <laughs> shuffling around like that is crazy this is the only place where i can really see this and uh it's just hard to imagine like that long ago, relatively speaking, you know, that's what, that's how we got this sort of entertainment. There was nothing, there was no equivalent on the silver screen that we could just pop in at any time. And it's, it really is kind of hard to wrap your, your mind around. Yeah. I'll I'll go ahead, Dan. I'm definitely not one for censorship. I'm definitely more or less, Hey, if someone's interested in reading or showing something, 
it should be available for those people to read or see it to a limit, of course. But I can absolutely see why people in the 1950s might have had an issue with these things being published. Digging through some of these old issues, I was like, Jesus, like they don't even do that in a lot of the mainstream comic books nowadays. And these were like huge selling comic books. Like they had to shut down EC Comics because all the other, you know, comic companies were having an issue with as much as they were selling. Uh, I get it, guys. I, I get why maybe we had to have some Senate hearings. Probably shouldn't have ended the way it did, but yeah, for 1950s, these are pretty shocking. I'm reminded of the opening of Creep Show, where you know <laughs> little Billy is getting the shit slapped out of him because you know he's reading those horror comics that are rotting out his brain. And I imagine, especially with you know 1950s mentalities and parenting techniques, like <laughs> that is based on true experience, 100. Um, yeah. Hopefully, your dad was Tom Atkins. You got to admire that sweet, sweet mustache. <laughs> but uh, yeah, like that is definitely grounded in some sort of reality that who knows Stephen King or whoever got to experience. But uh, yeah, it, it really is weird to look at stuff like this where it's like, even today, you know, I'm not a sensitive person. I've seen numerous horrors, but like there's something about turning the page of these, you know, really old comics at this point and being like, whoa, like they <laughs> really, what were they looking at? Like what, what were they doing? Like, is this what comes out when you, you smoke 19 cigarettes and you know have to turn out your artwork uh, it, it really just blows the mind you know i would be remiss if i left this out and, and no better place to to insert this than here um as far as the comic goes so i love that on the cover of this thing and i'm going to read this verbatim i mean it literally says introducing a new trend in magazines illustrated suspense stories we dare you to read and to that we say dare accepted, right? And you yeah. know, one thing we didn't hit on is yes, if if you're unfamiliar with with the EC Comics, yes, the Crypt Keeper is absolutely featured in this. But what's going to be great to see is the evolution because it certainly doesn't look like what we saw on HBO no. all those years later, uh, not in the least bit. But he is uh, making wise cracks and uh, you know, kind of summarizing the story for us. You know, intro, outro. So uh, good stuff, guys. And I, we're going to talk about the Crypt Keeper in just a second. But I love that his design inspiration is pulled from that. He's got the long white hair, which is definitely yeah. all strandy and has fallen out and everything. It literally is the rotted corpse version of the Crypt Keeper. And I, I think that's very cool that they've decided to go down that route. Um, and, you know, there was even the, maybe this is an episode for another time. Uh, well, it definitely is an episode for another time. But there was the uh, PC game that was being developed in the 90s, where <laughs> the Old Witch and the Vault Keeper, we actually got to see their HBO-ification um, characters show up in that game. The game was never released, but you can find the videos online. And they are definitely way more in line with their comic inspiration. But I just love that for the icon of their series they're like hey they love the crypt keeper let's let's go ahead and kill him let's let's do the creep show thing and make him the actual creep and i i just think that's very cool so we'd be remiss without uh talking about writers directors main stars etc uh we mentioned Walter Hill earlier, and he is both the writer and director for this episode. Uh, he's responsible for things such as Aliens and Alien 3, The Warriors, Crossroads, but not the Britney Spears one, the other one. <laughs> uh, and he uh, co-wrote it with Robert Renault, uh, who is responsible for things like Demolition Man and The Hitchhiker. Uh, as well as Stephen Dodd. And I think this might be the only time I mentioned Stephen Dodd, uh, or we might make a joke of it because as far as I can tell, he wrote 93 tales, uh, 93 episodes of tales from the crypt and not much else. So uh, <laughs> great job, but uh, yeah, we'll just, we'll just uh, mention him, but not any additional credits. Uh, main stars of course are William Sadler as Niles Talbot. Uh, he's plays the Grim Reaper in Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey, Haywood in the Shawshank Redemption, Jim in the Mist, Walter Reed in v VFW, uh, as well as Darren Tyler in Wonderfalls. If you guys haven't seen Wonderfalls, it's a wonderful Brian Fuller show that was only on for two seasons, I want to say, on Sci-Fi Channel. Very cool. Uh, Garrett Graham, he plays Theodore, who's uh, the guy in the hot tub. We'll get to that. Uh, but he plays Phil in Child's Play 2, and he also played Beef in Phantom of the Paradise, which I mentioned to you guys a few episodes ago on, uh, on Grim Grimming Hosts. 
as one of my uh, un- underseen movies. I don't remember what episode that was on, but I remember talking about it. Phantom of the Paradise, very cool. If you like Rocky Horror, check out Phantom of the Paradise. Uh, and final notable name, at least, is J.W. Smith. He plays Charlie Ledbetter, the guy that kicks it at the beginning. Uh, and he's known mostly for Turnbill from the Warriors, as well as Rick from Max Headroom, if you 80s kids remember that weird-ass show. Those are our notable players, writers, and directors. Man, well done, Dan. You know, one thing I just have to note, and I mean, we're going to address this throughout the course of the episode, um, but just looking at our on-screen talent, what a just amazing compilation of like character actors, right? And I know you mentioned, I mean, these guys in particular, but people like Garrett Graham, Roy Brocksmith, and our boy from Halloween 4, what is up to Raymond O'Connor? Oh my gosh, it was so lovely to see him in this episode. Um, this is just a, a great assembly of talent. And again, that's just on screen, not to mention you know the folks that you got into uh, behind the scenes. So, man, this is just uh, impressive. And obviously, this is a theme that carries throughout the entire uh, throughout the entire you know life of the show. Yeah, I'm going to say this is going to be one of the things I struggle with most personally is picking out, you know, certain names and certain faces because every scene is like, oh, hey, it's that one guy. Hey, it's that one yeah, guy. You've seen him in a million things. So yes. please, if someone pops up that I don't mention, jump in and let me know uh, because yeah, I got to na- nail it down besides, uh, you know, just na- nail down to the first couple main names on there. Sure, so we'll sure. talk about it for half an hour. <laughs> definitely and then we should mention as well uh william sadler does go on he does come back into the series with uh the first feature film demon night he shows back up for that one man just what a great talent because the fact that he went in for the detective role is what he was you know auditioning for oh wow and he ended up getting the lead part uh, supposedly the stipulation was he came in and gave this performance and then they were like, I'm going to give you this part, but don't you change a damn thing about it. Um, that's just how great this character is and how great its portrayal is. That's, that's amazing. I had no idea, um, about that. So I guess that's as good of a spot as any. Let's go ahead and talk about the episode itself because we're diving right into that Crypt Keeper segment. So this was our first ever introduction to the Crypt Keeper and this does establish him as a much darker and more sinister character than we get later on. He's kind of like Freddy in, in that sort of way where, you know, he's not as, you know, dream eater, dream killer as as Freddy or anything like that. But he started off as he has a sense of humor, but he's definitely not selling Budweiser and wearing Hawaiian t-shirts <laughs> and numerous costume changes. He's just this creepy little man who does his stories and you get a little bit of a gag and you get a hint of the laughter, but he's not the cackling menace that we know the Crypt Keeper as. And I think that's so interesting because we've been exposed to that version. Like I said, I think Freddy's the best version where we've been exposed to a particular iteration of that character for so long that that is the definitive one. So when you're watching this almost more subdued take on the character, you're like, that's interesting. And it stands out for that reason. Yeah, like, like you said, that voice has definitely evolved from this first episode because I, I put it in. I was like, oh, man, that is a lot lower and a lot slower than I'm <laughs> that lives in my mind. It is not the same voice. Yeah, he's not hosting like Saturday morning children's game shows yet. That That's for sure. <laughs> that's to come in the future, kids. Yep. Yeah, it makes you kind of wonder if that higher pitch voice was for, hey, you know, he's a little too creepy right now. Let's let's soften him up a little bit and maybe yeah. can sell some plushes to the children. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we'll make it happen. But uh, this does open up. He is sitting there and it is a good gag. He's sitting there looking at the the bug lamp, which is roasting some flies. And he's like, poor little maggots. <laughs> and then uh, he introduces us to us uh, the story. But very interestingly, he does not say the title of the story, which kind of becomes a trademark later on. He just says, hey, you know, we're diving into uh, this particular story. And he doesn't say the man who was deaf. So we don't get the name of it until the title drop. Interesting. Yeah. I do like that they made a comic book cover for the actual episode oh yeah take the old one 
It's so good because I love that it's it's almost like the Necronomicon, right? Where it's this big hulking tome that he's he's sorting through and it's like traditional writing and faded pages and everything like that. But then it's just this big graphic um, <laughs> comic book cover in the middle of it. And it's just an interesting juxtaposition. Obviously very much in line with the original comics um, kind of styling, I would say. Totally different from obviously the cover that we got in the actual release, but nonetheless, uh, you know, same character there. Yeah, and it's very good because we don't know at the time, but we are seeing our main character and his ultimate fate, and that is something that they do quite often. They give you a teaser of what the finale is on the cover art. Uh, not always, but usually. And uh, yeah, because we're diving in for the first time, we got to know how he ends up getting there. So let me set the stage, okay? Our story opens up on Charlie Ledbetter, a man who committed a double murder a couple years back and is on death row. And guess what? Tonight's the night. He's about to meet his maker. We then meet Niles Talbot. He's an Oklahoma country boy who loves living in the city, and he especially loves his job. Now, you see, he was originally an electrician, and he ends up becoming the county executioner, and it's brought him a lot of joy over the last 12 years. What a great opening scene. Like, seriously, this perfectly sets the tone of what we're about to experience because this opening dialogue is so good. It's so full of character. And I could pretty much listen to Sadler narrate anything. He's just got one of those perfect voices. And, you know, after we see Charles dragged away from that opening scene, uh, we realize that this isn't just an internal dialogue um, like the comic or anything like that. The main character of Talbot, he's going to guide us through the story in a style that's not unlike Ferris Bueller. He talks directly to us, to the camera, to the audience throughout this story. And that is such a great storytelling decision. It actively pulls you in. And I like that they use that throughout where you realize Talbot's he's a bit of a philosopher. He's going to let you know his feelings on everything. And we're going to dive into that in a little bit. But I just think it's so clever. Right or wrong, he's going to make sure you know what he thinks about it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And you know what? He's so, I I don't know if it's that voice or not. He says some stuff that you know are wrong, but you're like, you know what? Maybe he's got a point. Maybe he's right about that. (laughs) It's those turns of phrases too. He's talking about uh, the the secretary that got murdered by accident. And he's like, oh, he killed her big as hell. It's I think he says it's the luckiest moment he ever had when he, you know, he, she got shot right behind the ear and it was the only moment. I think he says uh, he also had a, a half pound of vodka for lunch, which is just a great turn of yeah. phrase. Dude, he just, said, it's the only kind, only kind of luck he ever had. Yep. Yep. <laughs> William Sadler is just so good, man. I mean, whether it is literally like the Shawshank Redemption or Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey, like, you know, he's he's just absolutely rock solid. And this is such a such an interesting character study of an episode. And Dan, I know there's a lot more to get in or excuse me, Hunter as well. There's a, there's a lot more to get into with this guy. That's for sure. Well, I was going to say Preston as a, uh, a big uh, fan of, uh, of, of you know, Halloween and, and those kind of movies. Uh, oh yeah. There, there's a, a movie called VFW that he's in by Joe Bagos, which is actually <laughs> very good and has a lot of that flavor to it. That's right. Yeah, man, that's a good call. Actually, I have I have seen that one uh, upon release. Actually, good stuff. I'm so glad you brought that up, Preston, because like you brought up his various roles. And I think the most notable ones are, you know, obviously this to us. But for most people, it's the Shawshank Redemption and and Bill and Ted. Like those are his his big claims to fame. But his accent work is just absolutely crazy. You know, we talked about Preston, you and I, um, you know, (laughs) we've talked about accents quite a couple times (laughs) over the years and uh, nitpicks and everything like that. The way he just 
eloquently slips into this voice performance and it never it never breaks it's so good and uh his just inflection and everything it all comes together where like i said he's he's simultaneously convincing and also soothing like i want him to read me a bedtime story I'm really glad you mentioned that because I just want to note out, I mean, how talented of a performance this was from him. He's from New York. Like he's from Buffalo. Yeah, exactly. So, right. So Definitely not Oklahoma. Absolutely not. Far from it. So uh, well done, William Sadler. Hell of a performance, man. Yeah, he definitely elevated kind of a, a generic story up to the next level. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Yeah. I do also want to go ahead and uh, mention uh, Ry Cooter's music. Uh, because it's so good throughout this. The opening of this has almost like this carnival mixed with blues feel to it that's just so interesting. And even if you don't know his name, you know his music, because he's worked with the Rolling Stones, he's worked with John Lee Hooker, he's worked with uh, Linda Ronstadt, and like, hell, he was even number eight on the Rolling Stone top 100 guitarist list at one point. wow. And I just think that's insane. Uh, he's definitely not a very common name, but his usage of the blues just works so well for the main theme of this episode, which is named after the episode itself, The Man Who Was Deaf. Uh, in fact, this theme, the, the main kind of blues plotting theme, that's not unlike uh, kind of the main theme from They Live. Uh, you can hear that uh, Man Who Was Deaf theme on the soundtrack album, which includes, you know, choice cuts from the series. I think that came out in October of 1992. This is on that album. So this is a lot of uh, people's favorite slices of music. Yeah, I thought the Carnival one was pretty good too, because in his mind, he's putting on a show for everybody, even though exactly you know, it's, it's him murdering a dude. Yeah, totally. Oh. So after work, you know, he finishes up frying some dude, Mr. Charlie Ledbetter. He has to grab a bite to eat, which is a, a black coffee and a cheese sandwich, you know, the meal of the everyman American <laughs> the go-to. Um, yeah. And he's ended up watching a late night newscast that's debating the end of the death penalty. And you know what? The next day it's banned and he's out of work. He begs for his job. He's like, Hey, uh, can, can I just come back and be the electrician? I did that for a lot of years. And the, the, the main guy, he's like, what's the, what's the main guy in a prison? <laughs> I forget their name. The, warden. the, the warden. warden. There we go. The fucking warden. The warden is like, <laughs> hey, uh, sorry, dude. You know that's not a good idea. Besides, you trained your replacement years ago. Go ahead and oh, get out. And, yeah, that's uh, great. Don't you love that? Oh, don't you love it? Seniority counts for shit in today's day and age. Um, <laughs> so he visits his favorite dive bar. He's got a good relationship with the bartender, Vic, there. And, you know, they debate the pros uh, not very many cons, but the pros of airing when someone gets fried. They think it would be high class stuff for their television show, which is a little bit of a, a wink and a nod, right? You guys, uh, you guys, surprised that we haven't actually had public executions on TV hmm. yet? Sure. As popular as uh, reality shows, maybe with the writers' strike, maybe we'll actually finally get public executions. <laughs> yeah. I mean, considering God. how many times uh, per week on YouTube I'm typing in "fatal car crash compilation," maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we should Jesus. start airing this. <laughs> I, I would like to point out the uh, the Spuds McKenzie neon on the back of the wall of the bar. I too. have oh. it in my note. Not only is the neon on the back wall, but if you look right over Vic's sol uh, shoulder, not soldier, if you look right over Vic's shoulder, you can see the Spuds McKenzie blow mold that I've been trying to get my hands on for the better part of two years, but can't find one for under $250. Woo. Wow. I'll keep an uh, eye out at the flea markets for you. Thank you. Thank you. I am definitely looking for Spuds McKenzie blow molds. If anybody's listening to this <laughs> for a fair price, please. Um, but yeah, it is interesting because, you know, I'm looking at my hat right here on the shelf right now of the Crypt Keeper with the Budweiser, you know, the Bud Keeper classic ads that they ran where the ultimate grand prize was you got to appear in an episode of Tales from the Crypt. So a little bit of unintentionally fun foreshadowing there because, you know, the Crypt Keeper himself became a mascot for Budweiser for a little bit. Were either of you guys surprised that the the main guy, the main electrocutioner, whatever his name is, uh, his title is, wasn't aware that they were making a bill that was going to make his job null and void anymore? <laughs> if you were the main guy yeah. that the bill was aiming for, don't you think you would be aware of that? My dude's out of the loop. <laughs> he, he, so he just likes shocking people. He doesn't yeah. Yeah. anything else. <laughs> 
I can rock with the the idea of he's aware, but he's just, you know, he's not worried about it because he's got such a strong sense of moral right and wrong to himself. And he thinks so highly of himself that he's not worried about it. He thinks that the American people is going to side with him. And it's it's a bit of a shock when all that comes down. Uh, uh, that's shoddy. There we go. Uh, you know, Dan, uh, give him a break. It was it was a time before smartphones, right? You know, he he's he he can't keep up with with the news, right? Yeah. All, sometimes all he so does focused, is all he sometimes does is you're shock so people. <laughs> I go, you go. No, go ahead. Sometimes you're well, so focused. Sometimes you're so focused on your cheese sandwich and black coffee, you just tune out the world, man. <laughs> that one's better than the one I got. You got it. Okay. <laughs> I think you should submit and then uh, listeners can vote between the two. Yes. Put it up on Twitter. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, we got to wait for Twitter to find out what it was. Throw it up on threads. Nobody will see it. No. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, hey, you know what? Despite all this, he's unable to let go of the American justice system. So he attends a trial for a local biker, Jimmy Flood who's wanted for murder, but gets off due to the arrest warrant not being worded correctly. Now, Talbot, he's not going to let this happen. He springs into action because he can't deal with none of these no-good ruffians getting off scot-free. That said, he does let us know in quite an elaborate little scene while he's setting up his trap that he does respect the bikers, especially, you know, because they, they believe in the American freedom before it all went to hell with big cities and lawyers and computers and corporations. So he rigs up that zap trap on a property that Jimmy's going to break into and Jimmy promptly fries on the fence. It's kind of the alternate cut of what could have happened to Tim in Jurassic Park in a just world. Right, Preston? <laughs> Um, Good call. Well, yeah. well said. He is shocked. And you know what? That moment, you might as well have a beam from the heaven. One doesn't show up in the series, obviously, but this is all Talbot needs to encourage himself to keep going. He becomes a the the, the full legal process at this point, and he absolutely relishes it. And this is like the big thing is that, you know, I just brought up the the moral right, sense and wrong and everything like that. But Talbot, he is a man that believes in his convictions. He feels very strongly uh, in, in the way he feels about things. And I just think that really comes through here where, you know, he gets the go ahead from God, more or less. <laughs> he accepts <laughs> it that way. And uh, he's he's committed. He's going to keep doing his thing. And um, he's he's convinced it's the right thing to do. And I think that's what makes him so interesting. I got to say, James Flood might be the ugliest dude ever. <laughs> he is a rough looking good. <laughs> you'd probably kill too if you look like James Flood. Yeah. I and just, I mean, he's a homophobe okay. too. He like spits yeah. on that girl. Yeah. And said said her brother was a F word, which is, yep. yeah. I mean, he had it coming, let's face it. Totally. Yeah, the, the dude had it coming. But I will say, I mean, when I first saw this guy and who it was, I, I felt a bit of sympathy because one day he's getting his ass kicked by, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger and T2. Next, mm -hmm. he, he's getting electrocuted. Um, again, going back to that character acting that pops up in this series, unbelievable, right? But yeah, that's, a, you know, what you hit on, Hunter, right as you were wrapping up there. I mean, that is what is so intriguing and kind of fascinating to me about this episode in particular is just what a great character study that this is and how good our lead character kind of portrays this right i mean it's the southern accent it's it's all the behind the scenes kind of monologue talking it all just just goes great yeah did you totally. guys notice the uh the biker theme too was uh the biker theme in pulp fiction i think oh no no i did not yeah go back and listen to that i'm like this is from pulp fiction i don't know oh if wow okay classic song or if tarantino just ripped it off like he does a lot of stuff i love tarantino but let's face it he just ripped shit off a movie <laughs> uh, but yeah i was like oh hey that's from pulp fiction oh i'll have to go back yeah. and listen to that the more you know i do like that we get to see that uh talbot niles he does have one little hint at the ultimate role that he takes because he's got this tiny little grim reaper tattoo on yep. his shoulder that I thought was important to note because he's not covered in, in other ink. Maybe he is on his legs. We never really get a shot at seeing it, but you know what? He's dedicated. He knows what his role is and uh, electricity is his scythe. 
No doubt about that, and he's got a little more to a little more to go with it as we'll uh, continue to cover in this episode. All right. So he attends his next trial where Theodore Karn, uh, Carney and his pretty new side piece, Cynthia Baldwin, are being tried for murdering Theodore's then wife. Talbot remarks that the now dead wife had full control of the money, so she had to go. Again, to the surprise of nobody, they're found not guilty. And you know what? Talbot doesn't like that. He breaks into their home and gives them the hot tub rejuvenation shock treatment of their dreams. He denies their pleas and cash offer. And even Cynthia does admit that, hey, you know, we totally off this lady <laughs> in her final <laughs> dying moments. Guys, this isn't quite the, the toaster in the bathtub death scene that we've all seen a million times, but this is good. And once again, this really owns in on who Talbot is here because he denies everything. You know, he's out of work, but he ain't doing that. You know, maybe he's getting a pension or something <laughs> because he's he's getting a little bit of a paycheck because he denies the cash. Um, at the end of the day, his moral sense of right and wrong is what's going to steer his ship and uh, nothing's going to advert that. If we're keeping count of nudity, uh, chuck up one for side boob in this scene. Side boob, yeah. That marks that on the, on the list. a half point. I will also say there's nothing more 80s than people having sex in a hot tub. It's like the worst <laughs> idea because it's hot, it's sweaty, water's a bad lube, but people in the 80s <laughs> loved having sex in a hot tub. Either that or a waterbed, right? Come on. <laughs> yeah, waterbeds for sure. Do you think uh do you think that's in the whirlpool? like manuals now Dan <laughs> hot sweaty not very good lube please yeah, do not have sex in your uh, new uh, whirlpool don't use water as a lube it is not as <laughs> luby as you think it would be that's right Tony the lube whirlpool here to remind you to practice safe sex uh but yeah, this is, once again, this is a kill that we've definitely seen numerous times. I mean, I, hell, Preston, maybe I'm assuming here, but our favorite boil oh, scene kill come probably on. comes from Halloween too, right? Dude, my brain goes there, fa you know, faster than you could mention it. Absolutely, that's where, I, that's where my head was. But there is something so visceral about just knowing the electrocution that happens in that tub there. And um, I credit to the actors because especially the guy, the guy who's playing yeah. uh, Theodore, his reaction to getting zapped is it's very ecstatic and elaborate. And I love just our zero sympathy from from our main character. Right. I mean, he has a job to do. He's there to do that. He's so convinced that, you know, what he has in his head is correct and the right way to go about it. So, uh, yeah, no ifs and buts about it. I mean, there there is a little bit of butt. There's also a little bit of side boob. But yeah. your point oh, is taken. One butt, one side boob. Right? <laughs> That's right. Enough. Okay. Right. Keep up. Right. No, no ifs or ands. There, there we have it. <laughs> Just so you guys know, uh, Horrors from the Vault is an equal, yeah, an aqual. <laughs> Horrors from the Vault is an equal opportunity employer when it comes to schlong and boobs. So uh, we'll be keeping a penis count as well. Yay. Yeah, I, I have a. I have a feeling, though, that the cock count is going to be way lower than the titty count, unfortunately, for our, our uh, people that enjoy the cock persuasion. But <laughs> maybe, maybe you might get one or two in there. Hopefully. That's right. Cock persuasion. We'll have like a special introduction when it happens. Cock um, persuasion. But hey, further enabled, Talbot continues his work on dispatching the scum around the city. And his next target, a go-go girl who was accused or excuse me, uh, who was acquitted of killing her boyfriend. So after giving us some dating advice, we get to enjoy some magnificent honkers. <laughs> Several <laughs> pairs of magnificent honkers, I'll add. Dan, what's the what's the tally yeah. here? Dan, so here. I I count them as six sets of or six total tits, uh, six <laughs> boobs. So that is unique boobs, not shots of boobs. So that's the way uh, we're going to do it from going forward. So if there's two boobs shown three times, it's still only two boobs. Okay. Perfect. Got it. Yeah. All right. I think that's so, fair. Six titties. Spoken like a true man. Once you've seen them once, the interest declines. Yeah, I got not, no use for them. Get them out of here. <laughs> Get them out of here. Gratuitous nudity. And like I said at the top, I think that there was a reason that this episode was the first one aired out of the three. And I, I feel like the TNA played a huge part into that, right? They're like, look, oh, come this on. is HBO. Come on, sit down. You're going to enjoy these. Yeah, they knew young Dan was watching, you know? Come on. <laughs> Santa Claus ain't running around with a schlong out in the next episode. Come on, <laughs> <laughs> that's a shame. that's how he kills the uh 
the dad in the next episode. Oh, and stabs him through the head. Um, so Talbot, he he sets up his rig to shock this girl in her go-go cage, but he is caught before he can finish his vigilante justice. And like I mentioned, you know that was the role the detective is the character that Sadler originally auditioned for. So it's pretty cool knowing that and just seeing like, wow, this amazing character that we had, he could have just been this little bit part. And I will say like, if they ever revisited some of this, I would totally be down to see the spinoff of the detective, like tracking him. And maybe there's some, like, we don't know if for sure if this is the third kill that he does, you know, there's a little bit of, you know, maybe he's been doing this, maybe not. Um, I kind of want to know the process. Like, how, how are they keeping track of this electricity killer? That's my main complaint about That's the awesome. episode is that it's so deus ex machina of the detectives just showing up out of nowhere. And while I appreciate it being, you know, just a tight half hour episode, let's get in, get out, you know, show some tits, show the murders, whatever. I would have liked a little more of the process of, oh, they're tracking him down or here's where he screwed up and that's where they're going to find him. Yeah, my one little complaint. I agree. It is one of those things where we kind of have to rewire our brains a little bit because especially being movie people where, you know, you know, between the three of us, we're at least watching usually one movie a day. Most of the times, too, um, we've kind of expected long term storytelling uh, or long form storytelling. So we kind of have to say, oh, you know, they got to make some concessions here and there. And this is one that I'm willing to give them because of the time restraint of the episode, obviously. But it is hard to get around. Hey, I wish I could see a little bit more of this future episodes. If it is a major issue with the episode where it's like, Hey, they really should have developed this a little bit more. That is where I'm going to start to be a little bit more particular about it. But for this, I'm willing to go ahead and say, Hey, it's fine. And I will say guys, like I, first of all, I do not disagree with you whatsoever because at the end of the day, of course, I'm going to take as much of this story as I can, but to play devil's advocate a little bit, you know, this really took inspiration from the comic in the sense where the story kind of went because obviously the comics kind of in a same situation where, I mean, we're talking about eight pages here, right? And, you know, on screen, we're talking about, you know, 26, 27 minutes. So um, it's a similar situation of things need needing to be condensed, but I really did kind of like the, Oh, like the kind of pop up of, Oh, like I, I wasn't necessarily anticipating him being busted. And then I love kind of the thought of once he is, you can kind of quickly see where this is going toward the end. And, uh, I, I like the setup, I will say. See, I'm glad you mentioned the comic because that's the one big change that I feel that they had the perfect way to uh, tie it all together. And what happens in the comic, for those that didn't read it, is uh, ironically, which Tales from the Crypt loves giving people ironic endings, he's given away by a flash of lightning and the the woman sees his face and that's how they know who he is. So Mm -hmm. he's done by electricity which was always his partner in all the murders. And I feel that they could have done something like that in here. Uh, unfortunately, it's like, and the detective show up. Sure. Yeah, I think that's fair. I will say maybe there was like, I don't know how you could have done it without being hokey, but maybe just have the detective shown up in the background of a scene or something like that. Kind of watching him like the cop from Psycho in the background when he uh, roasts Mr. Flood on the the chain link fence. There was some sort of way where you could allude to him, but hey, it was one of those things where they're probably just like, hey, we got to go ahead and get our guy. We got to go ahead and end here. I mean, they they don't even show the trial for this go-go dancer. The only information we get of why he's going after her is a newspaper that he steps on as he's walking into the go-go bar that says, hey, she was acquitted of that. And it's such a short little thing. It's very easy to miss. I know a lot of people have. They're like, hey, like, is he kind of controlled by his own delusions? And that's why he's going after this. He's making up his own um, moral sense of right and wrong. And maybe in a way he is where, hey, maybe she was acquitted for the right reasons. But given his, you know, track record with the other two, she probably did do it <laughs> is my assumption. And this was just yeah. the one that he got caught with. That's true. So, you know what? It seems like at the end of the day, our hero, or at least our main character was correct. Looks like the death penalty is the way to go because after just a few days, 
it's been reinstated. Who knows? Maybe they asked for a recount. Maybe this was you know, <laughs> the Bush versus Gore thing where they're like, hey, you know, there's only 18 of us, but somehow we fucked up on this. <laughs> we've got we've to recalculate this. And of course, it's just a little twist of fate. But yeah, it's been mentioned before. But man, politicians are moving faster than ever when it comes to this one. Um, so yeah, death penalty is the way to go. It's been reinstated. And little note here, because I think it was so funny and like off-putting and maybe I, I feel like I only really noticed it after my second watch through is that in the scene where it, it goes in on his face, there's this like almost Will Ferrell random. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that it does over that. Did you guys yeah. hear that? Yeah. Did you know yeah. That? yeah. I got some good news for you, Mr. Talbot. Since you're such a staunch supporter of capital punishment, you'll be glad to know the state legislature has just reinstated the death penalty. And guess who's not pulling the switch this time? Yeah! <laughs> I feel like I'm going to have to go get a clip of that to drop here because people yeah. are going to think I'm delusional. <laughs> this is really the highlight of the episode uh, right here um, because marrying the opening scene with Ledbetter, the former executioner has now become the executed. Um, and I love that they revisit that show theme that you mentioned, Dan, that carnival theme it's playing here. And he is literally reenacting pretty much, you know, the exact scene that he was just putting someone through a couple days before or a couple weeks prior. And uh, it's so interesting because it goes back to the whole, the governor's going to call, the governor's going to call. And even yes. though he says, you know, it hasn't happened in 12 years and it's not going to happen now. And just watching this man fall apart, who has been very composed the entire episode, the entire, you know, the entire way through, he's been a very cool and collected guy watching him fall apart before he ultimately hits that chair. It's like sickly satisfying mm -hmm. in a fun way. I, I love that so much. And that's a huge part of where the comic was kind of derived from as well. Because, I mean, the last frame that we see in the comic is literally him being hauled to the chair, just screaming. And it's such a difference, obviously, than when we met him when he was kind of poking fun at the people that were doing the same thing. Right. And so it's such a table turning moment and uh, just amazing storytelling, really. Yeah. Moral of the story, no matter how dedicated you are to your job, the boss doesn't care if you die or not. <laughs> Isn't that the truth? And I do love the way he says chicken shit motherfuckers in this scene. <laughs> yeah, that one's great. Uh, there's little things because I'm reminded that um, speaking of chicken shit, he says something to Charlie at the top um, where he's saying, don't be so damn chicken shit. You killed somebody. Now you're going to do the hot squat. It all evens out. And that's exactly what's happening here. And there's even the the minor thing where he refuses to get a haircut because the governor's going to call, right? And he he even <laughs> says, "Hey, you know, get your haircut because it's probably going to smoke." And in that opening scene, he pokes light at that where he's like, "Hey, you know, um, you know, sometimes I've seen him smoke," and he looks down upon it. And that's something that he thinks he's going to get away with. And it's, it's really, like I said, sickly satisfying how it all comes together here. Did, then, you guys, did you guys pick out favorite quotes? Oh, I really love the ending quote, but my, my other one's a little off color. <laughs> one of the, one of the most amusing quotes, I, I don't say I like it, but the one that I laughed out loud and was a little ashamed at was, uh, they're all pretty dark when I get done with them. Vic. Yeah. <laughs> oh <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I do want to bring up that ending quote um, uh, where he says, it's my job. That's why I did it, because it's my job. If a man ain't good at his job, then what the hell is he good for? What's anything good for? And then, zzz, and our man is out. And uh, not only is he out, we get that sweet little, like, it goes to black and then cuts back to him, just completely yeah. roasted in that chair. Mm. Uh, my favorite quote, uh, he was at the bar talking to the bartender. He goes, sure, there's a God, no doubt about it. Problem is, spends too much time making assholes like that biker. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> love he, that. He's got some good stuff. Well, it's not necessarily profound. It's the delivery entirely that makes you interested in what he has to say, yep. which is kind of what podcasting is like. Hopefully, we're, we're <laughs> saying a lot of nothing in an interesting way that you guys are enjoying. Um, but yeah, so um, after that, we get that final little shot of Niles roasted in that chair. We 
clap over to the crypt keeper he delivers his final little closer he's sitting in an electric chair himself enjoying a little bit of a shock and uh in my notes here i wrote uh stinky feet because boy he's he's got them dogs sticking out for you <laughs> I, I wrote something similar I, I wrote it's so weird to see the crypt keeper's legs because they're always a lot shorter than you expect them to be yeah yeah, oh, yeah. I mean, to the point where the animatronic, which Spirit Halloween just re-released, and the original Spencer's animatronic that it's based on, it's like his feet are sticking straight out. You know, he yeah. is a he is a right angle, and uh, I've you know I've had to touch them dogs an uncomfortable amount of times <laughs> lately to get I him all to, situated sure. in my room. <laughs> yeah, so I'm Tarantinoing. Tarantining? Can we go Tarant- with that? Yeah, that's Tar- fair enough. Tarantinoing um, with with the with them dogs. <laughs> it's all fun and games till you walk back in the room and he's in a completely different position than you arranged uh, him previously. Oh yeah, ass up. It's it's a little much. See anything you like, hunting? <laughs> but yeah, this electric chair gag, while not directly inspiring the toy, the tastemaker's toy of the Crypt Keeper from 1997 is him in the electric chair and that's a very popular piece of merch that you can still find is him getting shocked in the electric chair and like i said i don't think it's a reference to this exactly but Mm -hmm. it's hard not to make the comparison oh yeah and i think that concludes this week's episode of tales from the crypt again that was the man who was death so let's go ahead and play the music then we will give our ratings and we'll go ahead and get out of here All right, first ever episode review ranking. If you listen to episode zero, you know how we're doing it. This is a severed thumb system, not patented for obvious reasons. But Preston, why don't you go ahead and tell me what is your thumb rating for the man who was death? Man, what a great start to this series. I mean, seriously, um, you know, as we kind of talked about early on, such an interesting episode for them to use as their pilot. And I like to think that clearly it was a decently successful one, considering the life that uh, this series ultimately had. Um, so much greatness to this episode, so much subtle greatness, I would say. Um, not going to be my favorite episode by necessarily any stretch, but I just think this one is so solid. Um, Such a solid way to start things with this very character-driven episode, obviously. I feel pretty comfortable giving this four severed thumbs out of five. That puts it roughly in the kind of B-plus range for me, and I'm, I'm pretty happy with that, I think. I think that's a good starting point. Yeah. Uh, Dan, excuse me, because I'm going to go ahead and step in here as well, because I think four severed thumbs is exactly right, Preston, for for what I'm going to give it. Because my favorite episodes of Tales from the Crypt have that little bit of extra twist and and pardon the pun uh, spark that isn't quite here in this episode. But that said, it really is a remarkable production. Something we didn't bring up is that the cinematography in this actually mirrors a lot of the comic book panels, which I think is mm. great. It's kind of odd angles and, you know, face shots and everything like that. I'm not a, a cameraman, so excuse my limited knowledge on that. But it's very interesting seeing how they framed a lot of this to look like a comic book, which I think is great. But, you know, I, I just need a little bit more of that, that little bit of X factor to become a classic episode of Tales from the Crypt for me. And while I think this one is truly great, like I said, four out of five, that's better than, you know, a lot of the episodes we're going to talk about later oh, on. Yeah. It's just missing a little bit of that, that oomph to, to really push it into the all-star territory for me. So I'm going to go ahead and sit right next to you. Nice. I'm going to go ahead and sit uh, just slightly below you guys and give it three and a half severed thumbs up. Uh, like you both said, very solid. Uh, I, the performances were the, what elevated it. little bit of hand wavy third act nonsense with the detective. That's what brought it down. Uh, but all in all, it's uh, about exactly what you want a pilot episode of Tales from the Crypt to be. Three and a half thumbs up. Severed thumbs up. <laughs> 
I love it. So we've got a 3.5, a 3.5 thumb. Uh, Dan's cut it right off at the knuckle there. So it's kind of, a, it's kind of gross looking, but look, no, we're going to deal with other, it. Vertic- vertically. Oh, Ooh, yeah. I kind of like that cross yeah. section. Right half nice. down the cuticle. Ugh, it's Damn gross. It. I love it. Ow. Um, <laughs> the other half in my pocket. <laughs> you know, a snack for later. And then, <laughs> and then Preston and I right over at the four. So yes, very good ranking overall. It's been a lot of fun to talk about this very first episode of Tales from the Crypt, but we hope you stick around because uh, right after this, you can immediately start listening to episode two and all through the house. Look, it's on the artwork. You know how we feel about this one, or do you? You'll have to check out the next episode to figure out where we sit on and all through the house. Regardless of our feelings, absolutely a classic of the series that most people remember very fondly. So let's go ahead and close this book of Horrors from the Vault. I want to go ahead and thank my co-hosts, like always, for joining me. So, hey, Petrified Preston, thanks for being here, my friend. Oh, guys, this is a privilege, and uh, this just feels right, man. I, I love love these conversations that are happening, and oh, man, we got so much good stuff to talk about. Hey, if you want to keep up with me and my nonsense, don't know why you would, but you can find me at a few different places. First of all, let's give a shout out to what we're all in love with around here. Good old Letterboxd, right? At Preston967. Again, that's at Preston967. You can find me on Letterboxd, just logging all kinds of stuff, man. We stay busy over there. So find me there. Find me on Twitter under the same handle. I'm also on Facebook. Um, You can actually find me on Facebook under Preston Green. I work in radio hosting a daily morning show, and uh, I'm kind of on Facebook under that persona, if you will. So you'll find me there. And uh, yeah, find us right here, man. We're uh, going to be back at it. We got, like I said, lots to talk about, fellas. Glad to be here with you. Devilish Dan, thank you for being one of my right-hand mans. Always, brother, always. Uh, If you want to keep up with me, like uh, Preston said, we all love Letterboxd. Uh, You can check me out at Daniel P. Sims, two M's. Uh, If you want to just reach out to me and none of these other goofballs on Instagram, Twitter, threads, Blue Sky, it's at Red Right Dan. Or if you want to talk to all of us uh, or send a message to the podcast, it's Horror Vault Pod on Instagram, Twitter, Blue Sky Threads, all those. Or if you want to do long form, tippity typey words to us, uh, you can email us at horrorvaultpod at gmail.com. I love it. And if you want to keep up with me, the best place to do that is also on Letterboxd. You can find me at Discount Vincent Price on that platform. You can also find me at that on um, Instagram as well. I am no longer on Twitter. I am glad to be done with that hell site or X or whatever they're calling it now. I, I saw all you guys were like rebranding it to say Twitter again. You know, oh, what you, you stop with your X talk, Hunter. Yeah. That That's not a thing. Fucking bullshit. Um, I do want to go ahead and thank people behind the scenes who made this show possible. First off, I want to go ahead and thank the NeoZaz Podcast Network for hosting us. Um, they are a long-term established podcast network that has done several shows throughout the years, not only the Catacombs of Halloween Horror Nights that I'm a part of, but there is What We Say in the Shadows, which is a similar podcast, which is all about the hit series, What We Do in the Shadows. There is Star Wars in Character. There's Grady's. There's so many great shows on the podcast network a lot in similar fandom capacities to what we're doing here so make sure to go check that out additionally i do want to go ahead and give a shout out to gary pounds from the pop punk band in orlando pangolin who helped put together our podcast intro hell he did all of the great stuff that you hear for our intro and outro Penguin, no joke, one of my absolute favorite bands. Uh, they know how to write a banger. And I'm not yeah. just saying that because they're my friends. They really know how to crank out the music, whether it's songs about tacos, Bill Paxton or King Kong, they've got you covered. So definitely go check out Penguin. And then finally, we just want to thank you for spending your day with us here in the vault. We'll catch you next time. Crypt Keeper, let's get out of here.
Right. 